Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where each and every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge. Teaching is about attention, about getting students to pay attention to the material and engage with new ideas so they can develop new skills and abilities. Since the disruptions of the COVID pandemic, we've been hearing that instructors at all levels are having more trouble getting and keeping student attention than in the past, in what some are calling a crisis of student disengagement. A couple of months ago, I visited a big public university, Texas State University, and observed three large lecture classes to get a sense of what teaching looks like at colleges these days. I witnessed a high level of students not showing up for class, and in some cases, students looking tuned out with distractions on their phones and laptops. You can hear lots more details and my interviews with instructors and students at Texas State in the first two episodes of this series by looking back a few weeks on this podcast feed. I encourage you to go check those out if you haven't already. This week, in the finale of this series on student disengagement, we hear from professors at other colleges struggling with this issue. And we learn about some new approaches they're trying to connect with students and keep their attention. Along the way, we get into some deeper questions about what the role of a good teacher should be and whether this moment could lead to some changes in teaching that might be long overdue. I'm happy to say that people have been paying attention to this series. After the first episode ran, I heard from a few professors who wanted to share their perspectives and their own experiments in keeping student attention. One of those was Eric Martin, an associate professor in the kinesiology department at California State University at Monterey Bay. He was particularly interested in one theme of this series, which is how much technology seems to be contributing to student disengagement. When students have their phones and laptops constantly tempting them with texts and videos. He wrote me an email that started, I thought you'd be interested to hear about an experiment I ran about five years ago. Not formal research, just a casual experiment for my own interest. I called him up, of course, so I'll let him tell you the details. For that semester, the syllabus policy was you are not allowed to have a phone, a laptop, a tablet, no technology during normal lecture class. You can only have it on days. For example, we had several activities where I'd have them on the library website researching, finding, try to find research articles. So you had to have it then. But every other day, just normal lecture, they weren't allowed to have it. He did this because he was feeling that tech was a major distraction in his classroom that he feared was keeping his students from learning as much as they would if he just banned the gadgets. And so I compared grades from that semester to the prior semester, where I'd had no change in assignments, test questions. It was, it was identical to the prior semester delivery. But he was surprised by what happened next. Statistically, there's absolutely no difference between the two semesters in average student grade with or without technology as, as a distractor. And so it clearly shows that the technology is not, uh, you know, it's not this magical evil imp that's, that is the distraction of everybody. It's um, that students maybe are having trouble focusing regardless. I mean, they could 
just stare off at the screen into space, just stare at their desk. This professor is now convinced that tech is not the real problem. But that's not to say that he can easily hold students' attention for the whole lecture. In fact, like all the professors I talked to for this series, he noted that student disengagement has gotten worse since the pandemic. Um, last spring, with, with, like I said, last spring was the first time we were back on campus and you could not get students to talk for anything. They were just so used to hiding behind the Zoom camera and not speaking. And there's been some people that have looked at uh, even just return after pandemic, enhanced social anxiety in the classroom is uh, putting a muzzle on people. So like there's, there's legitimate reasons for this sometimes. The situation is so bad that these days he's happy to get one student to raise a hand, even if it's the same student every time. But the, so I had just one student who who was willing to answer, and initially I would tell her, you know, after she'd answered the second or third question, I'd be like, okay, you 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 put your quarters in the arcade slot for today, you're done. And after a couple of weeks where literally no one else would play, I just went up to her, grabbed her, and pulled her outside of class for a second. I said, okay, no one else is talking, so if you are interested in any question to ask or answer, if it's just you and me talking for 80 minutes, let's do it. Like, I will just totally cater to you. Um, yeah, it, it, it is really hard when you put stuff out there and get nothing back and don't always know why. Is it they don't know it? They're just shy. They weren't listening. You, you, a lot of times you have no idea as the instructor why you're not getting any kind of response. And it makes it very challenging to know, do I move on? Do I go back? Do I just stand here and try to wait them out? Which you usually do not win that as the instructor. <laughs> they, they usually can, they usually can break, uh, break you down first. The big question he has now is, how do professors regain students' attention? And with his long academic interest and expertise in kinesiology, that's the study of human movement, he has an idea. The, the, the best hint of an answer I found is in elementary school education, where I've seen several very good quality experiments where they have had little kids every, uh, I can't remember the exact time frame that they did it, but it was relatively frequent, like every 20 or 30 minutes, and this would be in grades about three to five, they'd have them get up and do some little physical activities, get their wiggles out. Um, my aunt is a special ed teacher in Texas, and she said that their school district subscribed to um, a web service that I can't remember the name of right now, but they, they produced just these silly little videos um, of like people dancing and you know, making up silly songs that the kids could go along to. I'm not sure which video exactly he's referring to, but I have an eight-year-old at home, and I can picture what he's talking about. These Get Your Wiggles Out videos, they can be silly, but really fun. And so all the research looking at tactics like that, about like this, these active breaks, um, it just shows like they get their wiggles out and then they they refocus and, and seem to, you know, whatever measures they're using, like cognitive on tasks, whatever the re researchers were using, did show to improve. Eric Martin argues that you don't have to be a little kid to need these active breaks. No, no human, or very, very few of us as humans learn to sit still and focus for two hours. Oh, another thing is our university, the standard class length is 80 minutes. Uh, which were, when I was an undergrad, it was not that long. So asking everybody to always be still and focus for 80 minutes is a challenge. 
So yeah, so I'd like to try something similar to what they've been doing um, in elementary school about, okay, let's just program it. Like every 30 minutes, we'll get up and, and do something, especially for us, we're, I'm in the kinesiology department. We teach people to exercise, so I feel like this should go hand in hand. Now, if, <laughs> He admits, though, that he has a harder time getting college students to do these active breaks than he would if he was teaching a room full of little kids. In the spring, I tried to do something like that, mostly just the start of class. I was like, okay, we'll start out every class. Um, we'll do some little exercises. I'll talk about it, talk about, um, you know, when you would use this in your professional practice, how it works, the cues to give for it. And I was covering mostly like rehab type activities. Um, and like two students would do it along with me. They were just, the rest just sat there and stared at me. And after like a month, I was like, well, I'm not just gonna, like, I'm not wasting 10 minutes of my instruction time if nobody's gonna do this with me. So, so yeah, so I think there's potential there, but I still have no idea how to get buy-in from the students and make it truly engaging. Sorry, that was an incredibly long-winded answer, but. <laughs> so is the large lecture format one that even works anymore? Yeah, yeah, I mean, are we? Is the current just whole, yeah, like have a normal class time, uh, regular class time, is that really the best way to, to learn? It's, it's, it's the easiest way to teach because you get this uninterrupted break where certainly my trade of thought goes better. But yeah, it, it does become an interesting question of is it a good way to learn? Here's where I have a confession to make. There were moments when I was observing those lectures at Texas State when I was distracted by my device, just like the students were. About halfway through the communication lecture I attended, I got a notification on my iPhone of a message on Slack, the workplace tool that we use at EdSurge. It was letting me know that there was a newsletter that I needed to proofread, and I dutifully read that message right then, even though I was supposed to be reporting this story. And I really should have remembered to silence my phone beforehand or to not look at it, but I read it anyway. When I talked to students at Texas State, the ones who were in the front of the classroom paying attention, they told me how they made sure to put their phones on do not disturb mode. So they were doing work to avoid what they knew might be temptation. Also, during the classes that I visited, I was able to get up and move around to get different vantages on what I was seeing, and that did help me keep focus. But most students, they were stuck in their desks the whole time. It seems like professors like Eric Martin would be up for just shortening or changing lectures. But the large lecture is probably here to stay, at least for now. So there must be steps that could be taken to improve engagement. Another email that I got from a listener recently offered another big idea. This one arrived from far away, from New Zealand. It was from a professor who teaches video game design at Victoria University of Wellington. I teach game development, so um, my whole teaching experience is around engagement because games are engagement engines. It's all they do is engage people. His name is Simon McCallum, and I was so curious to hear how he was inspired by video game design to improve his lecture classes. And so kind of that, that eating your own dog food, looking at how games engage people, it sort of seems that we need to use the same techniques to engage students in teaching. 
Um, and so, you know, I do a lot of work on, on self-determination theory, so I use a lot of, of DC and Ryan stuff. Uh, and looking at not just the sprinkling of game mechanics on things, but actually what is that deep engagement? Why are people motivated to come to my classes? So in other words, you're bringing this idea from what works in the video game realm to the instruction that you do. Yeah, so I, I, I to some extent, I, I have not just gamified, but also sort of agilified my teaching. And so what I'm what I'm looking at is, is how do I give students agency, competence and relatedness? So how do I give them choices in what they're learning and how they're learning? And I think that's one of the things that certainly drives a lot of engagement with games over traditional media is that sense of agency, that ability to be part of what you're doing rather than just a spectator. Um, and so I, I talked to my other lecturers about this idea of, of, are you doing a tiki tour? Are you getting on a bus and being taken around a tour of the sites of a country? Or are you arriving at it and having to work out, where do I go? What do I want to see? Where am I sleeping tonight? Right? And so those are two very different experiences of an educational journey. Now, some students really like the ticky to it. They want to know everything that's coming up. They want to know where they're going to sleep. They want to know what they're going to see. They want to know when they're going to see it. They want that full itinerary. Whereas other students, and particularly my gaming students, are put off by that because they feel like they're just a passenger and that them being there doesn't matter anymore. And I think that's one of the things you get when you're a spectator on a lecture when we did a lot of online lecture recordings where you just put a camera in the top corner and view the room, you're a spectator. You're not there. You're not part of the journey. You're just on this tiki tour at the back of the bus looking out the window. Um, and so trying to find ways where both online and in person, you feel part of the journey. And so I try and do a lot of things to, to kind of reinvigorate that sense of, of shared decision-making and engaging people so that, that when they come on this journey with me, they're part of the planning, not just someone sitting at the back of the bus. That's so interesting. You know, I, I think some professors might think, and some people who in the teaching and maybe just some listeners in general might think that video games are kind of the antithesis of education, that there's somehow the, the waste of time going on, whereas the serious material that needs to be covered is the, you know, is something else. So why, what is it about video games that you see as, as beneficial? Well, the, the thing is that video games are about learning through challenge, right? So there's kind of, well, most video games, there's of course a full range. It's the medium is not a single thing. Um, so and it, it's sometimes it's a bit like people, like read a trashy magazine and therefore assume all published work is terrible. And it's kind of, no, 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 there, there are bad games, right? Absolutely. But if you look at, at the way that um, kids play games and the way adults play games, they're challenging themselves, they're learning from challenge, they're getting instant feedback, they make decisions. And one of the big things that I see, and it's a challenge for very large classes where it's hard to give feedback, is that in games you can usually make a quite tight connection between an action you took and the results of that action, right? So success or failure is very much on a thing that I did led to the that result, right? 
Um, and so to learn, you can go, oh, I did that wrong. I need to fix that thing to get better. Right? And so games do a lot of, of challenging you and having boss levels to ramp up difficulty and adding those kind of challenges where you fail and learn from that failure. Um, and it's it's that credit assignment. You're able to say, yes, that I did something wrong that led to my failure. And I think one of the problems with, with edu- education and and my <laughs> one of the things I, I say a lot is that education is the gamification of learning. Right? Education is already a game. It's a game we created over top of a joyful activity. Learning is joyful. Just it, like humans are hardwired to love to learn. And then society decided to drive it in a particular way. And so we added badges and points and leaderboards. And, tests and, and GPAs and, and all that. Tests and oh. GPAs. We added all this machinery around joyful learning to drive behavior towards particular things. Right? And so it's already a game. It's just a badly designed game. Right? Because it doesn't give you quick feedback on challenge. It doesn't adapt to your current level of challenge, usually. Right? So there's I mean, good education is a great game, but bad education is a terrible game. And so I'm and I I see that that all of this is around how humans learn. And we know that play is critical. I mean one of my favorite examples of that is the uh, mountain goats. Right? Baby mountain goats, right? Mountain kids play on the side of a mountain and about 10% of them die. Right? They fall off the mountain and they I die. Didn't know that. Yeah. Right? Now, playing must be absolutely critical because evolution would have got rid of it if, it, if, if that death rate meant that it was negative to your overall survival, you would stop doing it. So somehow... The ones that don't play and survive are also not as evolutionary fit as the ones that risk it and play. So play has to be this really fundamentally effective way of becoming an adult and evolving. And so, you know, if we look at all cre- all mammals, play. So it's it's core to being a, a mammal is this play idea and, and humans. And... I'm, when we move to lifelong learning, right? So this idea of, of you know learning when you're a kid, we'd play, and then you'd perform as an adult. The the change we've had is that we now have lifelong learning, which means we have to have lifelong play. We have to keep playing games all of our life to keep ourselves cognitively flexible. We're no longer in a state where you learn as a child and perform as an adult. Because that's not the world we're in anymore. Yeah. You know, it's interesting too with, it sounds like you teach online primarily. Is that right? And uh, Well, I, I, I teach a mix. I teach online to Norway. I see. And um, so in, in Wellington, although I don't live in Wellington, um, I live in Dunedin, but I, um, I have um, a mix of teaching. I've been, um, I was primarily in person before the pandemic. And then of course we all went online. Um, and then having come back for the last couple of years, um, it's been a mix of blended online and in person. So I, 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 I really enjoy in-person lectures. I know for myself, I get a lot of energy back 
from the large audience. Um, my my first lectures as a lecturer, so twenty years ago, were to um, a nine hundred and ninety student first year class what? at Otago University. What were you teaching? Yeah, uh, Comp One Hundred and One, the first year computer science, and it was nineteen ninety nine. So we had nine hundred and ninety students doing the course, and that was a two o'clock, four o'clock, and six o'clock lecture. So it was the same lecture. Uh, to three lectures of 330 seat lecture theatre because there wasn't recordings and there wasn't streaming to other lecture theatres and anything. so so we had to do I had to do the same lecture three times and because students were streamed differently on the Monday and Wednesday I had, had to hit the same endpoint and sub cover the same content in each one of those lectures because you wouldn't know you wouldn't be able to save it up for the next lecture because you wouldn't know if those students would be in that same. Well, how do you how do you make day? that engaging? <laughs> well, that that becomes a, a mix of theatre and stand up, right? You have to engage some people in the audience. You have to get some feedback going, and do what's that kind of feeling part of the crowd that's engaged, right? So once you can get some people engaged, and you're in that group then you can feel engaged. Um, so, yeah, I, but it, that's that's a very different skill uh, to, to a small lecture theatre of 20 or 30 people or an online session. Yeah. So, yeah, I was, I was really curious to hear examples, and maybe there's separate examples for online versus in-person, but um, for, for in-person, maybe first, like what are some ways... Okay, let's say people are starting to buy your idea that we can learn from video games that people in education can can try to apply some of the the good things about video game design to uh, a teaching design. Um, what is an example, a very concrete example of how to do that in an in-person class? So, um, well, I, I've got some examples where I, I, I do it for both um, and for in-person and and online but one of the first things I do is um, give the students some choices as to what they're they're learning um, so one of the things that I've I've done is I put my um, content into a backlog so I look at the topics I want to cover I put them into a list and I say to the students right this is what we're this is 80 percent of the course right so I leave I leave a couple of of flexible bits at the end and then the students and I vote on what the next week's topic's going to be. So the order in which I teach things will change based on the students saying what they want to learn. Now, if you're doing in person, what you can do is you can say, well, okay, one of the advantages of coming in person is you're here to make that vote, right? So if, if you turn up and you engage, you get to drive what we're going to, the order in which we learn things. Um, and that actually forces me to keep my content more modular because if I don't know the order in which I'm going to teach it, I can't do those highly coupled links to earlier content. I have to keep it more modular, which also allows the students who miss a class to come back more easily because I haven't tied it in so much. I haven't pre-planned everything. I'm having to be a bit more flexible. And it also means that the students get to see other people voting for things and wanting to learn particular aspects of the course and even if their their vote even if the topic they're interested in does it doesn't come to the top um 
they can still see that the rest of the class have voted for that. And so they still get that experience of, oh, our team wants to achieve this thing. So they can buy into that goal, not just because I'm telling them this is what they need to learn, but because their cohort have agreed that this is what they want to learn. Um, so that's a that's one of the that's both in person and online you can do the, the voting but in person you can kind of reward them for engagement by giving them some control and what I do with that last 20 percent is I say to students that things are changing so quickly it's hard for me to keep up and so what I say to them hey we've got I've got these extra topics space if you come to us you, can, you go find something you want to learn put it into the list of topics and we'll and you can pitch it to the class to say, hey, we th should cover this. And if the class votes that to the top, then I will teach that as part of the course. Right? Now, the advantage of that is I suddenly get, you know, 20, 30, if it's a small class, um, eyes out there looking for interesting issues in this area, bringing it back, pitching it to the class, voting it up and having that as part of the course. And so I don't have to do all of that work myself. And the really engaged students, this is a, a permission to go out and change the course and update it and be part of their learning. And that's very freeing for them. And even if they don't get to cover that topic in the course, they've gone out and already learned it. So that's great. That's a win, right? Just the <laughs> act of them engaging is a win. I love it. No, that's really interesting. And, you know, the um, you have been teaching, obviously, for a while. And... I'm curious, have you noticed, you know, kind of the premise of the series here is that there's this growing student disengagement. I've seen some debate online. Is that really so? Um, it's hard to find, you know, data on something so, um, you know, a, a little bit anecdotal at this point and, and new. But are you feeling like in the classes you're teaching that it's harder to engage students these days for whatever reason? So I know. So I'm I'm part of our our teaching and learning. Um, so I'm the chair of our teaching and learning committee for our faculty, and and so I'm in the central teaching and learning discussions around this. And so we've been looking at data, and and it it varies across different faculties. Um, so uh, faculties that traditionally have a very um, in person and and engaged style. Um, when students went online, they lost some of that and it's very hard to get it back. Um, and so when we look at, at the education faculty um, and um, yeah, the health sciences, some of them, um, speed people not turning up, really terrible because the lecturers aren't great at producing online content because that's not what their core skill is. Um, and so uh, engagement with a group of people who have spent a couple of years, right? Because high school um, not not being in person meant that they kind of went online and they got used to being online. Getting them back is much harder. Um, I, <laughs> I argue against the attention span discussions because people talk about kids having low attention spans. How do they binge watch movies, right? If, if they've got a low attention span, how are they going to spend 15 hours watching a TV series, right? It's, it's not a low attention span. It's just that they don't bring energy to your content, right? So it used to be that the students would bring attention to the content. And so you could give 
bland content and the students would spend effort paying attention to it, right? Um, so if the content itself is not engaging, then they have to bring that energy. And what they're doing is they're not bringing that energy anymore, right? So if you want to engage them, you have to provide all of that engagement effort rather than relying on the student bringing that in. No, I, that's well put. Um, and I, I think that boils down to what I'm hearing and what I've seen in my reporting and what I've learned is that, yeah, there's th that it used to be you could get away with it, quote unquote, as the as the instructor, if you're just up there. And now that is not the same. No, no. Well, I mean, it's it's one of those um, <laughs> if if you look at the, the traditional educational theory of saying, you know, you have to have 10 minute videos or five minute videos or, you know, 30 second videos, seven um, minutes, whatever and, it is. And, yeah. 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 Um, and you know, that's, that's a measure of if your content is boring and people don't want to actually learn from it, how much time can they spend? How much energy do they have to spend on boring content? Wow. Right? It's kind and of harsh. Seven minutes is about, <laughs> well, seven minutes is about what you've got. Right. I mean, if you look at the way people read novels, how many pages in does the, the novel have to hook you, right? And if you look at the change in music, they've moved the hook into the first 10 seconds of music, and it's fundamentally changed pop music because you can't have a slow intro. You have to have your hook in the first 10 seconds so that you can stop them skipping you on Spotify, right? So it's that fundamental change of where that hook comes is means that if with education your video link either can be an hour long if it's really engaging but if there's no hook if there's no engagement then yeah you they're going to drop out really early so it's it it is a change it means that that you have to start finding ways to engage people, motivate them to, to want to stay around because they think, hey, there's going to be something interesting here or they're actually engaged in the wanting to find the content. They're not just trying to do this for compliance reasons, right? So they're not just, they're not just getting there to pass the course, that they actually want to learn what you're teaching. And that's interesting because the, the second part of the series, I, I feel like I get into that a little bit where it's the the worry is that students are really about the compliance if they're not engaged. So if they will go to the lecture, if it's required or if there's some points that they get that they think they want, but not necessarily out of this like inherent intrinsic, like I'm gonna, I need to go to this class necessarily. Obviously there's exceptions. Yeah. It, it's become a, a bunch more transactional, right? So they're seeing it as that transaction of, you know, I'm here to get this other thing that you're a gatekeeper of. Um, and, uh, and that 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 disconnect from um, students respecting me as a lecturer because I have interesting knowledge that they want to gain, right? That they want to be more like me, right? They, they say, Simon knows stuff. I want to know stuff. I'll talk to Simon because he knows stuff, right? <laughs> um, and, and that to the Simon is the boss, He's the enemy. I have to get past him to get to my reward. Um, and so that that switch of of being either a, a, a helpful NPC. Non-player character in the enemy. video game realm. Yeah, yeah, non-player character in video game. Realm. I, I see myself as an NPC, a non-player character in most of my undergraduate students' lives, right? Um, but I'm the help character, 
right? So, you know, they because they don't actually know who I am, right? My, my post-grad students, they, they get to know more about me as a character, right? But as at first year, second year, third year, I'm, I'm a quest giver. I'm, I'm, I'm here to support their journey, not to be an enemy boss. And so this is why I also do a bunch of, again, to engage students, I have uh, percentage-weighted rubrics. So I give a rubric and I allow the students to adjust the weightings on each of the categories. And it's partly to have that a, a assessment by agreement, right? We agree on how you're going to be assessed. So like policing by consent is the idea that police are part of society. Assessment by consent is the, the idea that let's work out together what's important and what motivates you. We know that assessment is something that motivates you. So let's agree on how we're going to motivate you to get to your goal. And so that's why we agree on what's going to be assessed and how it's going to be assessed as a group. And then having agreed that you can work towards that. And so even if, and the secret is, it mostly ends up that a good student gets A's across all categories and a weak student gets C's across all categories. So for most students, the weighting of the categories doesn't really matter. It's only for those middle students who are, you know, time poor. They know what they're good at. They know what they're bad at. If they could get better at the stuff they're bad at, if they just had more time, they're the ones who get the most benefit from being able to sculpt the category weighting. But that sense of, oh, I'm part of this decision making. I'm I'm here and I get to choose how I'm assessed and some of the topics and I can see what my goal is and I can see how the assessment is designed to motivate me to help me get to that goal. So it's that shared journey. And I'm just an NPC. I, and one of the things I've tried to get through to my, my lecturers is that I know that it's really wonderful to get that in-person feedback, right? To have a group of people with their eyes lighting up as you give them information is so rewarding, right? It's really fulfilling as a lecturer, as a professor. But that's not their journey, that's my journey, right? As an NPC, my goal is to make them engaged, not to have a great time myself. So this, the transaction I've, I've decided is that um, when, you're, when you're being that NPC, when you are guiding first year students, you have to find your energy elsewhere. Um, and that you you give it to the students and you create their journey for them uh, and you help them plan that journey without it being your own, how do I get the most out of this? What What's engaging for me? It's a, what's the benefit for my undergrads? In both of these conversations with college instructors, one thing really stood out. The lecture model works better for the teacher at the front of the room than it does for students stuck in their desks. That was also a theme of a recent conversation I had with James Lang, a national expert on college teaching who has written several books on the subject. He's also a longtime professor of English at Assumption University in Massachusetts. Attention is reciprocal, right? We pay attention to the people who are paying attention to us. He had some back to basics advice for anyone teaching. And that we all know this from like being, you know, in a meal with somebody who's just looking at their phone and you're trying to talk to them 
And finally, you're like, all right, I give up here, right? You know, if, if you want to just lose our look at our phone, let's just look at our phone. I mean, what's, you know, um, so, you know, th th I think that's a really important principle is that we have to be aware of the fact that we, we focus on, you know, we tend to focus on are the students paying attention to us in the front of the room, but we have to do the same thing. We have to pay attention, not to, to the material, which is important, but to the individual students. So, you know, there, and so, I, you know, I've looked at some of the research, for example, on the use of names. And, uh, you know, names are a major draw of our attention. When somebody says your name, it sort of pops up your attention. Um, and so, you know, this is something been people have, have looked at in terms of three-month-old infants. And so, like, when a three-month-old infant hears their name and then is, proceeds to expose to something new, there, so there's more brain activity. Um, than if they had just been exposed to the thing before um, instead of and not having had their heard their name first, right? So, huh. um, you know, so when we hear, any, I mean, anyone can go to a classroom and experience this, right? You just, you walk into a classroom and you start teaching and you start saying people's names, they, they're going to pop light, they're going to pop to light. Essentially, oh, okay, wait, he's paying attention. Like, you know, I've got I've to listen now and see like, what the person was, the teacher has been saying to me, or what he, is what, he, what they're asking. So like, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do that. And, you know, for me, the two local, lowest hanging fruits for attention in the classroom are names and physical space. Um, and so again, if you've ever been to a lecture, for example, where you have a person who stands, like if you're, you know, a coach at academic lecture, something like that, and you have someone who stands in front of, behind the podium for 45 minutes, Right, it's really easy to zone out. But if you have that person comes off the stage, walks into the aisles, and standing right next to you while they're talking, you're gonna pay better. You're gonna pay closer attention. Like there's no way to get around that. I mean, because you you realize that person's actually pay, paying attention to me out of a hundred people in this room, you know. And and then you kind of observe that person doing that to other people, and you realize, okay, they're actually they're not just saying what they want to say. They're actually seeing do people get it. Right. So like we I agree that the way that, you know, sometimes people, professors are just sort of um, they're not giving the attention that they want to get back, essentially, to the individuals in the room. Yeah. And so students really pick up on that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, especially, you know, I've heard students say, uh, you know, when the institution I taught for 20 years, we were faculty advisors. And so every every. Um, you know, student, I had like a, you know, a load of advisors, uh, advisees. And so, um, you know, I'd ask them about how their classes are going. And, um, and sometimes what students say, you know, I've been, it's like the 12th week of the semester. And in our classes, we had never more than 30 students in a class. And sometimes the professors wouldn't still know their names, you know, 12 weeks into the semester. Now I get it's hard, but learning names is hard. And so you, that's part of our, you know, that's just part of the work we have to do. Um, so, you know, when students, I, I know they feel like when they're just sort of like a cog in the machine of that classroom, professor doesn't know who they are, um, that, that's demotivating. I asked James Lang whether he thinks that the lecture format still works. I think that, uh, you know, thinking about what is the point of a lecture is, um, you know, there's different things that a, a, a good lecture can do. It can inspire people, it can motivate them, it can, you know, put a face on like uh, a body of research. And, you know, we're humans, we like that. We, we, we don't want to just sort of learn from, I mean, actually, you know, the, the AI whole the thing with 
chat is it gpt chat gpt whatever it might be yeah it's gpt is it yeah chat gpt right so like if you want to if you want to learn something um you know i can put a prompt in there and it's going to spit out um decent information right because it, it can search everything and 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 I actually did a prompt this because uh, I'm I'm writing this current book about um, about writing, and you know so I said okay so I put a uh, prompt in there on the subject of my book and the you know what it put out was pretty good I mean it was fine it was like it was basically solid advice about writing for scholars, um, but you know if if that's what you're doing right either in your writing or in your teaching. Um, you know, there's there's plenty of other ways that students can get that information, but what, one of the things that we have to be able to do is to to um, use our indistinctive voices, right? And that we know that in terms of writing, right? People have to have a distinctive voice, right? Instead of so we don't, we don't just sort of sound like a, a scholarly bot, right? We we, we want to be able to sort of um, we we should embrace our sort of you know writing personalities, the things that 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 are quirky about it as writers or that give readers glimpses of, of who we are as, as the sort of person behind the curtain, right? The, the, behind the curtain of your prose, essentially, right? And the same is true for the classroom, um, right? So like, it's not a bad idea to sort of give those moments, those glimpses of, of your experiences, what makes you interested in the subject matter, um, personal experiences you've had that relate to the subject matter, um, what you found fascinating about it, right? Those things they 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 grab our attention and they um they they help see the the relevance of the material to like real human lives and experiences and all that stuff. So um, so I think lectures as just sort of a delivery system of information um, are going to continue to be more and more challenging. But there's things that we can do to make those lectures more um, you know more relevant and engaging. As for how he will compete with TikTok and other distractions that students often turn to on their devices these days, Lang says he makes a point at the beginning of each term to have a conversation about his expectations around tech use. I have a sort of policy for engagement and technology in the, in the classroom. And I, um, I give that to students. Um, I invite them to look at it together and then um, Give me feedback on it and then I, I revise it and bring it back to them and then they're asked to sign it actually and this is this is how we're going to treat each other um, in the classroom in terms of how we pay attention to each other and that's 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 the kind of the way I try to sell it this is not just about you paying attention to me and and, and also about me paying attention to you we should be doing those things as well but um, how you pay attention to each other so that you know when student when a student is making a uh for example you know i teach a literature class and sometimes we'll, and we're talking about like life issues that come up in a work of literature and the students saying something meaningful about you know that connected to their lives or the personal experiences nobody should be tuning out at that point and just like looking at their phones you should be listening to that person um and so you know that's part of the contract like the social contract of the classroom and so i um that's the way i try to explain it to the students is that this is, these are the sort of rules that help us pay attention to each other. How can students be learning if they aren't paying attention to what's going on in the classroom? At this moment, when students feel like they can go learn just about anything on their own on the internet, and that their teachers are essentially non-player characters, what is the best way to run a lecture? 
These seem like essential questions for the future of education, especially at colleges, where the lecture is still the dominant format for undergraduates. So one question that I still have as we wind up the series, the biggest one really for me, is will the COVID crisis lead to a reboot in college teaching? Lately, I've been leaning toward no, that colleges were most likely to try to go back to a pre-pandemic normal. But then, in the past few weeks, all this talk of chat GPT and AI started to happen. And now it seems like there might be a national conversation about what it means to teach and how students can prove that they are learning rather than just presenting work made by a bot. Because actually, teaching isn't just about attention. It's about relationships. And that's all the more reason for instructors to learn the names of their students and forge human bonds that can't be as easily tuned out or replaced by robots. This has been the EdSurge Podcast. Every week we look at how education is changing and aim to spark your curiosity about the learning process. If you like the show, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend about the EdSurge Podcast on social media or in person. You can also sign up for our podcast newsletter where you'll get reminders of new episodes and you'll get resources about the topics that we cover. Just go to edsurge.com, click on the word newsletter at the top right. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And I'm on Twitter at jryoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Music by Komaku. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening. What are your favorite, what's your favorite game or what's a game that inspires you to, to kind of think of through all these things we're talking about? I've pl- been playing some 5D chess, which is a weird computer game, which is actually it's 4D chess, but it's, it's two dimensional chess plus time travel and multiverse.